Hey, this is David Ellison from Megadeth, and you are here with Iron City Rocks. Hi, everyone. This is Daniel from Inflames, and you're listening to Iron City Rocks. Welcome to episode 187 of the Iron City Rocks podcast. I am your host, John. The Iron City Rocks podcast coming to you from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, bringing you the best hard rock, heavy metal, blues, and all-around music talk on the net. Episode 187, we have kind of a, uh, an assortment of stuff going on. We have joining us from the band In Flames, Daniel, uh, from the band The Scenics. We have Andy. And we also have uh, the first installment officially of the Heavy Metal Book Club. So we're going to do, uh, Sean had an opportunity to talk to In Flames. In Flames, a relatively new album out called Sounds of a Playground Fading. Uh, they're doing a tour, unfortunately not coming to Pittsburgh, uh, but uh, I know Sean's a big fan of the band In Flames, so we thought, heck, if he's a big fan, we probably got some other big fans out there. So we talked to Daniel uh, just about a week ago. Uh, so what we're going to do, we're going to play a song called Where the Dead Ships Dwell from the new album. And we're going to get into Sean's talk with Daniel.
Thanks for tuning in. We've got Daniel in from Flames with us tonight. How are you doing today, Daniel? Awesome today, thanks. Cool. Um, you guys are currently on tour. I think you guys are playing down in uh, Kentucky tonight. Is that correct? Sorry? You're playing down in uh, Kentucky tonight? Yeah, uh, in a place called Covington. It's next, right next to Cincinnati. Okay, cool. Um, how's the tour been going? I guess this tour is only about a week old right now. Yeah, so far it's been really good. Uh, it's uh, it's a good bands on the bill. Uh, Battle of Sword, Ocean Parish, and uh, Demon Hunter. And uh, we have really good guys, and really looking forward to the rest of the tour. So it's going to be cool. Great. This is going to be a long tour. You guys are going until March, and you guys, you know, shows up until August in, uh, in Europe. Um, recently, you guys just did the seven seventy. 70,000 tons of metal cruise. Um, can you talk a little bit about that experience? Yeah, it's was, it was a pretty cool experience. It's very different from all the other shows we played uh, during our career. Uh, I mean, you, you play this ship and there's no backstage areas. You you hang out with, with the fans and all the other bands and just have a good time. Uh, so it's it's a really cool thing to do. And uh, how were the fans on the cruise? Was it, uh, you know, was it kind of a party atmosphere the whole time, and or was it, yeah. was it like a strict schedule? Or no, it was it was very laid back. People were really, uh, I mean, they respected respected your private sphere, so to speak. Uh, no one was really obnoxious, so we had a great time. I was a little bit worried before, but uh, I mean, we'll definitely do it again if we get a chance. I've always uh, been one of those. It seems like it's a great time. Um, like I said, you're touring now till like the end of the year. Does that take a toll on you guys? But you've been on tour since uh, the album came out almost a year and a half ago, it seems. I mean, we love doing it. The day we think touring is like boring, we'll probably end playing in the band. Right. So, I mean, we still feel that we can improve wise performance wise and there are still a lot of places that we haven't played so we will still continue to tour as, as much as we can so it's all good is there any, is there any places you're looking forward to playing uh, on this tour for example we play a lot of places that we haven't been before uh, okay. and it's always great to, to see new places and new fans we noticed already that there's a lot of people that come to see your place for the first time so that's great nice. And you guys have been around since uh, the early 90s, and you've been in the band since uh, Colony. Uh, Colony, I believe, was your first album. Um, you know, over the years, you guys, you know, definitely matured, you know, the albums. You know, not, not the album sound uh, like the previous one, which is great. You can see that kind of growth happening. Um, this, your latest album, Sounds of a Playground Fading, is the first album without Jesper. Was that process any different than it has been before? Not really, no. I mean, we were prepared. Just to, just to quit uh, several months before the recording, so we were prepared for it. And uh, Bjorn had to do more work than before, but uh, really an awesome job. And basically, he writes all the riffs and presents song ideas, and then we we all sit down together and arrange them into complete songs and do a lot of recordings until we're happy with it. And uh, I mean. We didn't have any outside pressure or anything. We just we had a good time, as we all do right. when we record albums. So. Well, that's, that's all that you know. The matters getting the music out there and getting to the stands and having a good time with it. Um, how did you get started in music? Sorry, how? how? 
were you always a drummer, or did you uh, play other instruments before? When did you start playing drums? It was actually my my younger brother who who started to play the drums. Um, okay. When I was like 14, and then I started to play around with the drum kit that we had back home, uh, and that's how I started. And then I picked up a few uh, CDs from like the Florida scene, the extreme death metal, and I tried to play the, play along with my Walkman, <laughs> and uh, that's Great. how I learned to play the drums. And cool. Um, let's talk a little bit on a serious note right now. You guys just finished up a tour uh, with Lamb of God, and we all know what's been happening with Randy lately, and, and the trial started this week. Uh, can you talk a little bit about your thoughts on, on what's happening? Yeah, um, I feel very sorry for, for Randy. we extremely... I don't think he had any intention to harm anyone and wherever we are. So right. I feel so f- sorry for him and for the band, and we can just hope for the best. I mean, we did so many tours for them. Yeah. Really great guys, all of us. So I'm really sorry for all those guys right now. So, but we'll cross our fingers and see what happens. Yes, I hope I hope everything does work out in his favor. There's, you know, that stuff happening. Has that had an impact on how you guys approach the show? Because always, you know, there's always been that. Never since Dimebag, you know, was shot, you know, the fans rushing the stage and popping up on stage. There's always that little bit of, you know, fear in your mind. You guys change things. You know, yeah, I mean, you, you, you don't think about it while you're on stage, but uh, right. sometimes when you're not playing, you you might think about it because you're you're pretty vulnerable up there, you know? Right. You're, like, left out in a way. Uh, so, yeah, sometimes you think about it, but not, not during the shows, though. Uh, and... Knock on wood, we we've been really lucky with we didn't really have any accidents so far in our career. Right. So let's hope that it continues this way. Cool. Um, you know, I just want to you know thank you for taking the uh, time to talk with us today. I know uh, you guys got a show coming up uh, in a few hours. So um, do you just you know what's what's up next for In Flames? Uh, we're gonna finish this American tour ends in the beginning of March, and then. <laughs> A few other shows around the world and end, uh, end this morning cycle this summer in Europe doing festivals. And then we'll start off again doing a new album and hopefully be on the road again next year. So Cool. cool. We look forward to, uh, to seeing you out there and hearing some of this stuff from you guys in the future. Um, I want to thank you for taking the time, coming on the show, and uh, wish you guys luck for the rest of the tour. Thank you very much. Have you ever listened to an album and thought to yourself, man, I could do so much better than that? Well, here's your chance. My name is Sue, and I've decided to write my next album live and online at RageAndApathy.com. So come on over, leave me a comment, and tell me what you think about the album and where you think it should go. And as a bonus for you Iron City rockers out there, I will give you an exclusive copy of the first song as soon as I get it finished. So stop on over to RageAndApathy.com and join my madness. In concert, Saturday night, April 6th at Consol Energy Center. One night, one stage. Slowhand is back live. The force and six string that defined a generation. Eric Clapton. 
Saturday, April 6th at Consol Energy Center. Eric Clapton and his special guest, The Wallflowers. Tickets on sale now. Available at Ticketmaster. The Rock and Roll Hall of Famer, Eric Clapton. A Beaver production. All right, again, a big thank you to Daniel from In Flames coming on the show, talking about the uh, latest things going on with the band. They're going to be on the road with Demon Hunter, All Shall Perish, and Battlecross. That tour started at the very beginning of February runs through the first week of March. Probably as close as it's going to come to Pittsburgh for those interested is Allentown. They're going to be playing Crocodile Rock, which seems to be kind of a can't-miss destination for most hard rock bands. So you check that out. We're going to get into an interview now that Aaron did with a band called The Scenics. Uh, Admittedly, I don't know a lot about The Scenics, but Aaron uh, gave me his word that they were pretty cool. So I said, run with it. Uh, He talked to Andy Myers of the band. Uh, So we're going to play a track from them called Dark Cave and then get into Aaron's interview with Andy Myers of Scenics. Working in a dark cave All alone by candlelight Working in a dark cave Working in a dark cave Hope I dig in my own grave or Working in a dark cave By candlelight oh, Won't you come here and bring me sunlight 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 Sleep, working in a dark cave. Working in a dark cave. Think I might crawl in too deep. Working in a dark cave by candlelight. Oh, won't you come here and bring the sunlight? Oh, won't you come here and bring the sunlight? Won't you come here and bring the sunlight? Won't you come here and bring me sunlight? Won't you come here and bring me sunlight? Won't you come here and bring me Dark cave 
I'm doing great today, Aaron. How are you doing? Great, man. Hey, thanks for joining me here for the interview. My pleasure. So you guys are from Canada, and you're a punk rock band, right? Yeah, we're from Toronto, and we're, uh, um, you know, we're. it's funny. I was just thinking about this last night. We came up during the original punk rock era, uh, you know, 76 to 82 was our first run. But we were kind of more in the television, uh, <coughs> Perubu, Big Star, Velvet Underground end of things. So um, we are kind of in the punk rock time, but also kind of outside the punk rock thing in a way. So it got a bit confusing then and it <laughs> for, for some people. Well, I found that kind of interesting. Because um, I, w- I was you know, listening listen to the stuff on the new album, Dead Man Walks Down Bayview, and I'm kind of, mm-hmm. kind of checking it out. I read the bio. But then I just started thinking, like, Toronto. Mm-hmm. Uh, of all the places I think of punk, Toronto is not one of them. And and forgive my ignorance, but be, because of where I live in Pittsburgh here, when I hear Toronto, I always think of Phantom of the Opera, because Phantom of the Opera was always playing in Toronto. You know? <laughs> well, the Phantom's pretty punk, you know? <laughs> well, that is, that is true. That is true. Yeah, Toronto, Toronto um, the Toronto punk scene really flew under the radar, and uh, that was largely because, uh, well, a few reasons. Uh, at the time, we had this, uh, I think there was kind of a national Canadian insecurity, or definitely a regional. Toronto was, a, in some ways, a fairly repressive town. They didn't really support new, unusual things. So there was a flourishing, a very flourishing punk scene. Some of the, uh, some of the most high-profile, you know, relatively speaking, bands to come out of there were the, uh, the Vile Tones, Teenage Head, uh, the Diodes, uh, and the, one, the other thing that Toronto lacked that New York had and London had and a few other places had was we didn't have a strong independent label. We didn't have a Stiff Records. We didn't have a Sire Records or even Orc Records, Red Star Records out of New York. So there was nobody who was, who was um, grabbing the bands and uh, making really strong records for them. That had a big impact on how the uh, Toronto scene um, you know, the lack of, uh, of notoriety it received. So is that why um, you guys went on to create your own record label, the Scenic View Recordings? Yeah, we, we, um, um, that, was, that was what we eventually ended up doing back then. We did do one album. There, you know, I'm contradicting myself here. There was a local label called Bomb Records, 
but it wasn't there wasn't really sort of real strong production or real strong vision uh you know for an indie label you need like one guy who's got fantastic taste and who just picks the best bands and makes good records for them and you couldn't say that was the case with bomb it was pretty scattershot what they did so we did one record we did one lp with them in 79 and they weren't really hooked up with you know distribution and all that sort of stuff and then in uh, 81 we recorded a, a single and we put that out on our own label which we called scenic root and um and so that was what was happening then of course now starting in 2008 we've put in putting out cds on our own dream tower imprint and um we put us started in 2008 with a CD of us live recordings of us playing Velvet Underground songs recorded in 77 to 81, and uh, then we followed that up a couple years later with and that that album's called How Does It Feel to Be Loved. The Scenics play the Velvet Underground. Then we followed that up with Sunshine World, which is uh, studio stuff we did in 77 and 78 because studio was really important part of what we did, like important to us. Uh, myself and my partner Ken Badger, who also plays in the band uh, and who plays guitar in the band and writes and sings. So there's two writers, him and myself. Um, but we were really, we'd, you know, once every year or two going to the studio and lay down a bunch of songs. But they mostly just, uh, you know, sat in our basement. They didn't, they didn't become records in those days. Wow. So Dream Tower is what's putting out that stuff now. We started putting out a couple of archival collections, and then we. Uh, Put out this new record of uh, of current recordings uh, just recently. Wow! So so a lot of the material here has really kind of had had a lot of time behind it, and it's kind of neat to hear that because it still feels very fresh. Like, like as I go back and listen to some of this stuff. Great. Uh, are you talking about the stuff on on Dead Man? Walks on Down Bayview. Well, the stuff the... on Dead Man, but but also the the, the previous stuff too that that it's set for a while. Great. Well, I appreciate that. Uh, we get that we get that feedback a lot from people, and I think that's kind of because as we were ta- as we were as I mentioned earlier we didn't really fit into the scene then and sonically and so at least the scene in Toronto the scene in Toronto mm-hmm. was pretty much um, hard rock punk you know pretty much people who were had pretty directly been inspired by the Ramones in one way or another although they didn't sound like the Ramones <laughs> and um so i think you know, if you're doing something that's not inspired by kind of the latest sound or the flavor of the month, it, it kind of doesn't happen so much inside of a timeline. It just sounds like itself. And that was always our, like Ken and I started the band in the summer of 76, and um, at that point, what became the, the new wave, which then started to be called punk a couple years later, um, or a year later, I guess, um, at that point, it was like the records that existed were uh, television's first single, Little Johnny Jewel, the first couple of Perubu singles, uh, the first Ramones album, the first Patti Smith album, Horses, and uh, the first Talking Heads 45, um, Love Goes to Building on Fire. And those, those records were all so creative and so idiosyncratic. Everything, all, each of them was a very unique sound. Yeah, and um, it really felt like the um, this new wave was going to be about just about being yourself in as powerful and, and direct a musical way as you could. So that was the um, the punk movement that you know we took our marching orders from. That was what we that was, and it was like incredibly thrilling to be you know 19 years old 
and to have because there was it was all happening you know all, all those things were happening out of New York or you know in that area in general I know Paribu was originally Cleveland um, and um, you really could tell that there was there was something kind of coalescing there was some sort of you know movement of, you know at least sonic or energetic movement a new way of being that was basically was about the fact that rock had become this big bloated thing <laughs> you know the big bands like Led Zepp and people like that I mean I can appreciate Led Zepp but when I was a pimply uh, 16 year old um, I couldn't play like Led Zepp I couldn't play like Jimmy Page I didn't have the the walls of the amps I didn't have Eddie Kramer mixing my recordings um, I I didn't have, you know, $2,000 satin outfits and everything. So it really became um, what rock had become was really separated from the, you know, the, the man in the street or the boy and girl in the street. And that was, it kind of had to happen because there was the, that, that essential direct connection to youth that rock always had had kind of been lost. Yeah, and, and it's kind of neat to hear you say that because I've heard that before. For, from other people, you know, that have talked mm-hmm. about the punk rock, but I mean, you were really active in the heart of of the punk movement. I mean, you, uh, that's when you guys were active, seventy six to eighty two. There, yeah, exactly. Um, so now I'm kind of curious. Like, so you guys had a large period of time off between eighty two and two thousand eight. So yeah, what, yeah. like, what what happened during that time? Uh, like, were you guys, you know, still playing, but separately? Like, did you keep your chops up, or was this in 2008? You said, okay, boy, we got to start practicing again. Like, what what happened in that time off? Well, we played together for six years. We did our thing pretty intensely. I mean, it was like, you know, kind of the center of all of our lives. And uh, I guess a couple things happened. Uh, one, we'd kind of, we, we, we'd found out what we could do. I mean, the scenic thing kept changing. The scenics in 77 didn't sound like they did in 78 or in 79. In '80, we had a, we uh, got a new drummer, Mark Perkel, who was an old high school friend of mine, who's our drummer again today, a fantastic drummer, and our sound really changed at that point. Um, but we 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 always had a hard time getting a lot of a, a, a big following in Toronto at the time because what we were doing was kind of different. The thing I always say is, punk was a revolution, but there was no room inside the revolution for another revolution. So. <laughs> Uh, people, you know, we had we had a, a, a modest, rabid following of people who really dug us, and a lot of people who just were completely confused by us at the time. And um, so those two things had happened, and then, and then the big thing that happened was Ken, my partner Ken, had and his wife had moved a couple hours north of Toronto, uh, where she had a teaching job, and then she got pregnant and they had a baby, and so. It was kind of like, why are we continuing to do this? Like, we we know what we can do. We've proved it to ourselves. And uh, we've done a bunch of recording. We've written tons of songs. And uh, it just, you know, there was there was not enough coming back kind of to uh, support it at that point, especially with Ken living in, you know, two hours outside of town. And then after, soon after that, I moved to the West Coast. I currently live in uh, British Columbia. So... Uh, that was, you know, I mean, that <laughs> that was it for the Xenix at the time. And so we didn't really, you know, I, I stayed very occasionally in touch with Ken. Um, um, you know, and this is my, uh, you know, my brother who, you know, we'd sat down in his living room and just pulled this whole sound together and this whole thing together. And we didn't write together, but we certainly, 
you know, I mean, he would bring in a song, and I'd go, holy crap, that's a great song. I've got to write a song. So we really, you know, drove each other and inspired yeah. each other. And, uh, but, we, you know, we'd kind of talk every three years or something or drop a Christmas card or a postcard or something. And I didn't talk to any of the other guys. And um, then Ken sent me a box with a bunch of our old cassettes in it because we used to record all our gigs and most of our practices. We've got like 300 hours of archival recordings here, which um, I've been releasing, like going through and sort of doing a chronological history of slash best of that I call Punk Haiku. That's also, it's up on our website, thescenics.com slash Punk Haiku. Yeah, I was reading over that. That was some interesting stuff. Yeah, and thank you. And um, so he sent me a few boxes of these tapes, or a box of these tapes, and um, I, you know, I diligently put them on a shelf and ignored them for another two years. Uh, he said, you know, put these here, because I've got a recording studio out here, so he said, put, you know, put these on disc for us before these tapes fall apart. And when I eventually got around to listening to them, uh, I had a weekend by myself, and I just thought, okay, I'm going to do that, because every time I'd walk by them, I'd feel guilty about not doing it. And um, I was knocked out by it. The Phoenix had totally... You know, to say they were backburnered for me would be an understatement. The stove was like off and the wires were disconnected. Um, but um, when I started listening to them, uh, there were all these songs. We had all these songs. I thought, wow, those are good songs. And uh, there was just so much energy and we had a sound. And it was even very, very cool to hear the 19 year old me uh, cracking wise from the stage, you know, make just the energy and the. The, the that that nineteen year old spunk, you know. Huh. And um Ken and I started talking more. Actually, you know, when I first heard those tapes, I immediate, I literally sat down and started writing the punk haiku thing. I did like sort of a four six page um you know, pre of the whole story and that was yeah. and then I just started you know, going back and writing it at that point. Um so Ken and I started talking more and he was also had, you know, was pretty was pretty excited by some of the stuff he heard. So we started planning to do. We thought we'll do the Velvets uh, live Velvet CD. We had um, and 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 just to sort of to answer your question, what happened in between? I mean, we all just lived our lives, you know. I certainly kept playing out here, and I did a lot of, um, you know, like you go through a few different periods of things you're doing. I I, I had a period writing music for theater for. Uh, you know, got almost 10 years or something, which I really enjoyed wow. and got a lot from. And I was in bands and writing songs solely, and I got into uh, got into recording. Um, you know, and you'd have to ask the other guys, but all of us did, you know, did things in between. Uh, but then when Ken and I started talking about the Phoenix again, we decided to release an album of Velvet Underground covers, because we did, always did do a lot of Velvet Underground covers. There was always sort of like, you know, a few of them in the repertoire at any particular time. Um, I think it's because Ken, well, Ken was a huge Velvet Underground fan. I'm, I'm less of a fan. I like them, but, you know, they don't come to my mind when I think of who my top five artists are or something. I certainly like them, but they're not, you know. I get more excited, for example, about John Cale's solo recordings than I do about the Velvets. Um, then, uh, but so yeah, we decided to do an album of of live Velvet stuff because we thought, a, we knew we could do them really well. Just the combination of 
harmonies and lyrics and melody and noise that the Velvet Underground's had, um, we really related to it. And the this, this songs were really simple in terms of, you know, chords and things like that. So they were kind of like our version of doing blues. You know, the Scenics didn't do blues, we didn't do country, but that, the Velvets were sort of like urban folk rock blues. <clears throat> so uh, they were just easy to do. You could put them on, and we tended to, we tended to have our way with them, you know, which is, we, we always did a lot of covers um, as well as both of us writing. But we tend to make the covers so that sometimes they were un- unrecognizable. Uh, we do we do our own thing with them, and so the Velvets. There was being as, a, as the template of the song was so simple, it was easy to do stuff to them. Uh, so that's the um, so so we did the Velvet Underground CD because we had a lot of Velvet Underground songs and because we knew we we did them well, and so I figured that you know a CD of Velvet Underground songs, a band doing Velvet Underground songs would cross a reviewer's desk. And, you know, nobody knew who we were. And um, they'd be more likely to give it a play because it's kind of a challenge. Can these guys do it? And, you know, we got a lot of great reviews. We got, uh, we made a top 10 list in the, for a critic in the Village Voice. And uh, we charted in the top 30 nationally in Canada College Radio with that CD and um, stuff like that. So it was really appreciated by people, which is what I thought would happen and would be a good way to reintroduce our name. Uh, or introduce our name to a bunch of new people. But the thing that, I, that happened that I didn't expect is that um, basically we got a lot of reviews saying we're like um, uh, Velvet Underground Acolytes or Velvet Underground, uh, Canada's Velvet Underground or Velvet <laughs> Underground. Um, yeah. You know, and it's like, it's just funny. You know, the songs were right to do at a time because they were, this nice, simple, easy template to, uh, to um, you know, play with and do things with, and they're great songs, but they certainly don't hold that um, hold that place in my pantheon. But that's just how it went. Wow. So, so then, what took us now to I guess where we're at present day with Dead Man Walks Down Bayview? Like, how how did that come about? Cause you you did the okay. you know live album, the covers, and now you know we're up to. To new material, right? This, right? this is fresh new to your stuff. So how'd that come about? Yeah. Well, what happened is after the Velvet Underground album, um, actually the next step was Ken and I was do, were doing a phone interview with a woman named Liz Worth, who's written a very cool book called uh, "Treat Me Like Dirt," which is a, a which is a, a, story, a, a book, an oral book, like an oral history about the Toronto punk scene. It's not very thorough, I wouldn't say, but it covers aspects of it quite well. Um. So Ken and I were talking on the phone for an hour to Liz, and I really got this sense of the energy between us and this just the, the, the clicking between us that there had always been. And I got off the phone thinking, geez, we could play live. This is like, you know, this feels just like uh, what the band was. So that spring we went back to Toronto, and uh, I went back to Toronto, and we reconvened with Mark, our, 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 the, our drummer from 80 to 82, who was definitely my favorite drummer we played with. And uh, he's a, I mean, I love his playing. And Mike Young, who played with us uh, in 79 and 80 and um, on bass. And um, so we did some gigs. We played North by Northeast in Toronto, uh, open for Carla Bozilich, and uh, just had a blast. And it's, you know, the, the amazing thing is, for whatever reason with, with bands, like it sounded like the Scenics again. And that was kind of, uh, you know, 
miraculous in a way. And then uh, the next year we released Sunshine World, which was uh, studio recordings in 77 and 78, the best of all that stuff that we had. We would go off into the studio and record on our own. And we were very fortunate we managed to hook up at the time with a guy named Barry Steinberg, who was really a, a great producer for us. It just, um, it just you know, the, the sound, the recordings, they really work in a way that... Uh, a young band is lucky if they're if they go to the studio for the first time and stuff works like that. We got had a sympathetic ear and a nice feeling place to play in, and the whole thing just worked. So that was Sunshine World, and we kept going back. And um, around that time, one of the times I went back to Toronto, I thought, geez, okay, I've been back a few times now for a little, you know, six date mini tours and stuff like that. Uh, you know, the band's kind of in the groove. We should get go in and do some recording. So we went into a studio in Toronto and laid down. Uh, bed tracks for a bunch of songs and then I came back here and Ken was in Toronto throwing down some overdubs and I threw down some overdubs to back here and uh, then we had uh, a fellow, a really uh, excellent producer super nice guy in Victoria named Joby Baker who's recorded stuff that's won uh, Juno Awards and has won, he's won a, a Latin Grammy and stuff like that uh, so he's a really great producer, nice guy. Uh, we went in and mixed the stuff at his place, and that's the uh, that's how Dead Man came about. And the material on Dead Man is it really covers uh, a range of time. I mean, uh, I had some songs that I had written just before the scenic split up, like in 1980, wow. that I really liked, and I and. Um, you know, I was kind of, it was kind of disappointing that we never had a chance to record them. So I decided to pull them out and do those. So four of my songs in the album are from 80 and 81. Um, then there's one of, one of my songs and a couple of Ken's songs that are like eight, late 80s through the 90s. And then there's a couple of Ken's songs he wrote in like 2008. So it's, it's, um, the repertoire goes bridges from when the Scenics were together the first time wow. to right to present day, and the sound on the album really brings the, uh, you know, brings the sound of the Scenics to the present. So, uh, and you know, it was funny to to because it took us a couple of years to after we did the bed tracks to actually get the thing done, and. Um, it was so by the time we finished it, I mean those sessions were in the past, you know they're a couple of years old, yeah, so they weren't fresh in the mind, so it was kind of it was really kind of a shock to get to the end and see what we had and to see that it held up, and that you know the songs all meshed well together, and there was a flow to the album and everything so it was uh yeah it was it was a great experience to get to make a record with the Phoenix again. We're already talking about the next one, but that won't be for a couple of years. Oh, that's fantastic. Now, on, on this record, Dead Man Walks Down Bayview, like, listening to it, and especially now you're giving me some the history, mm-hmm. it, it's still, like, it, it's kind of kind of wild to hear that it was, that it bridges that much time, because when I listen to it, it sounds like a big, cohesive work. Right? right. That's the first thing. It sounds very cohesive, but it also, like, you guys have, like, this edginess to your lyrics, but the music is so accessible. The music is so accessible. Like accessible. It, it, oh, great! Yeah, great. and 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 like I almost want to, I almost want to call it intelligent because, but I, that's not. I, I don't want to sound pretentious with that. But just 
like the musicianship in there, the melodies that you weave in with the guitar work and then the way the bass and the drums and everything work together. But that's like the lyrics are, are will just slap you in the face. And I just, I love that. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, uh, what can I say? We're, we're punks. <laughs> yeah. And one, well, and that's just it. Like it, it's so, it's so, so it kind of lures you in. And also you're like, Holy crap. Did he just say, yeah. Yeah, I, I can't. I wish I remember the name of the track I listened to last night. But I'm listening to it in the car, and I'm like, "Son of a gun, was that?" Whole, and you're like, I'm backing stuff up, going, "Wow!" You know? Yeah, that was probably uh, a fox, her fur, and where she parks it, which is a great title of a song by Ken's, which I really, which is one of the ones he just wrote, and uh, it's really great because it's. Uh, I mean, and, I, and the cool thing about being in the scenic and is is I can just be a fan of Ken's stuff, you know. Like you know, I have to use I have to use Canadian modesty talking about my own stuff, but I'm a you know huge fan of what Mike brings to the band and a, and a mega huge fan of Mark's drumming and the, the uh, just the joy in his playing and what he brings to that and intelligence in his playing and um, Ken's songs I can just dig like a fan. I mean I don't know how he comes up with his stuff and um, um, a fox her fur and where she parks it is like a. It sounds like a kind of a soul ballad, almost like a uh, a rock band doing uh, Al Green tune or something. But yeah. then the lyrics are, are going to some really dark places, and they just it's uh, as, as Ken says when we do it live, it's a song written by a jealous man. Huh. And um, it's uh, yeah, I mean and that's that's one of the pleasures of playing with the Scenics is that Ken's always going to surprise me with what he comes up with. Ah, that's cool. And it's it's a really really nice collection of tunes here. Thank you. I appreciate that, Aaron. Now, was there any significance to the title "Dead Man Walks Down Bayview," or is that just a, a cool line you guys came up with? Because the title really grabbed me. Okay, great. Um, and actually, while we're talking about the title, I'm going to segue for a second, and, and, and we're talking about the album. I'm going to say also that I love the cover art, and the cover art was done by uh, my old best friend from high school, uh, a guy, guy named Dave Montel, who's gone on to be. A guy named Dave Montel, who's gone on to become a uh, quite a successful graphics graphic designer, and uh, we reconnected a couple of years ago, and he's done all the artwork for the for our albums and CDs, and does a great job. And I feel like they, the artwork really ties, it really fits this album. And uh, the title the title was was part of the long, strange process on this album. Um, we really had a hard time coming up with a consensus title. And uh, um, in the end, uh, Dead Man Walks Down Bayview was a title Ken came up with that uh, I just ended up going with. But in terms of what it means, uh, your guess is as good as mine. I mean, if you're talking to Ken, he could tell you what he thought when he came up with it. But I, I, will, say, I will say that when back in, back in the day, in the late 70s, um, the Scenics practice place was a basement uh, basement under a toy store on a place called Bayview Avenue, which was kind of uptown Toronto. It definitely wasn't a grungy downtown industrial loft. It was kind of a a pleasant. Well, it was a larger street, but it was a, kind of a pleasant larger steep street with you know people walking their dogs and women pushing prams and. Uh, um, and, uh, you know, as opposed to n- no goods pushing junk. And, 
you know, so it was kind of a funny spot. We'd go there, you know, I mean, we'd go there like four or five times a week yeah. and go down to this basement where all the other people in the, in the, in the buildings, in the offices had gone home. And we'd make this incredible row, incredible noise <laughs> down there. So that was that was our place. So um, that's that's quite a quite a hint as to uh, you know uh, uh, as to what the title means. Um, cool. Yeah, I think I think for Canada was this idea of this thing that had become reanimated and uh, was uh, on the prowl again. Wow, uh, yeah, that's that's man. So that, that's just really grabbed me. So that's kind of a neat back history to it there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right, well, Andy, thanks for um, doing the interview today. I don't want to take up any more of your time. And uh, thanks for coming on the show. Aaron, my pleasure. My pleasure to be on Iron City Rocks. And you all have a really great day. And uh, thanks for the chat. All right, again, that was Andy from Scenics. Uh, you can check them out. You can follow links to, from ironcityrocks.com to get to them. And also, while you're out on the web, check out ironcityrocks.com. Uh, you can go to facebook.com forward slash ironcityrocks, Twitter dot com forward slash iron city rocks and youtube.com forward slash iron city rocks i want to take a moment to thank all of you who participated uh we ran an indiegogo campaign and for those not familiar indiegogo is uh very similar to kickstarter a campaign to help raise some money to purchase some new uh, photography equipment uh we despite what indiegogo's website uh showed did very well in the campaign uh we had a lot of great uh, people make donations and uh, take advantage of a lot of the rewards we offered. So we were able to go ahead and order the equipment. Uh, and we really, really want to thank all of you who participated in that. And uh, what we're going to do now, uh, Iron City Rocks, no stranger to talking about heavy metal literature. We have had uh, many distinguished art- authors, I should say, on this uh, show. We've had Tony Iommi, Zach Wilde. Uh, just to name a couple, uh, David Ellison joined us after writing a book. Uh, so we're going to make a formal segment now, uh, maybe not every episode, but as many as we can, because we know, uh, oddly enough, it seems like the books sell better than albums these days. So we are going to introduce our new segment called Heavy Metal Book Club. The uh, subject of tonight's Heavy Metal Book Club, Aaron spoke to the author Michael Tony about a book called Tales from the Stage, Tales from the Stage. I uh, have to admit, uh, when I saw this one come across my desk, I was like, ah, I wish I had written this first. Uh, it's a collection of interviews that uh, Michael did um, from guys inside the industry. So it, uh, it's a really cool read. Uh, Aaron talks to him all about that. It features interviews with uh, many bands that uh, have been on the show, including like Ripper Owens and some people like that. So I'm going to take the time to uh, talk to Tony about the book, and then if you go to talesfromthestage.com, you can order yourself a copy. Uh, I, don't, I would assume it's available on Amazon and things like that as well. So talesfromthestage.com. Let's check out Aaron's interview with Michael. Heavy Metal Book Club. Ladies and gentlemen, I have Michael Tony on the line, the author of the book Tales from the Stage. Michael, how are you doing today? I'm doing awesome. How are you, Aaron? I am doing great, man. Hey, thanks for agreeing to do this interview. We're really looking forward to talking about the book today. Yeah, I'm excited as well. How are things? Uh, you're up in Pennsylvania. It's got to be cold up there. You know, it, it is definitely very cold today. It wasn't bad the other day. Um, we actually had, like, like the windows open over the weekend. Oh, geez. And, um, yes, it's down to freezing again, you know. So, yeah, same, same in Las Vegas. We hit, like, 26 last night. So it's a, it's a chilly time for Las Vegas. 
Yeah, now, you know, it's funny. I didn't realize you were out in Vegas. I actually have a buddy who teaches school out there. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's, it's a great city. Yeah. Yeah, interesting town, interesting town. Very so much. Let's talk about this, this book here. So, Tales from the Stage. You've put this together. This has been something that you have done start to finish, right? Self-published all the way, right? That is correct. I, uh, just a uh, real quick background on it. I came up with the concept a little over a year ago, actually. It was probably the last week of December and uh, basically thought it would be a really great idea because I was going to have some spare time on my hands, and I've always been just a huge metal junkie, and I've been in a metal band and all this kind of thing. And I said, you know, why don't I follow my passion a little bit here? I, I have some time on my hands. I'm financially in good shape. I don't need to, you know, be making a, a whole lot of money. I'm jumping on this. And I reached out to, you know, numerous guys, and it ended up being 15 that we put in the book and really did some very in-depth interviews with some of these guys where you get to learn not only about their career and, their, and the controversies throughout their career, but we really focus on the personal component of their life, their family life, their finances, the cars they drive, the drugs they've done, all this kind of thing. So you really kind of get to know the, the participant after you're done reading the interview. That was the goal there. Well, you know, and it's funny you, you mentioned that because that's what I was thinking too. Like these questions start out kind of general in, in each interview that I've read sure. so far, but then you really get personal and, you know, you can tell you've done your, your background on, um, on each one of the <clears throat> each, each one of the artists, like the one with Ripper Owens, um, right down to, well, tell me the day that you got the phone call from so-and-so. And I'm like, Wow. I'm like that. That's that's pretty pretty detailed there. And that was a really really neat part of the story about you know when he got the call for Judas Priest. Yeah, um, thanks. Uh, he, he, Ripper did give us a great interview, and you know another one that I thought was was similar to that where you really learned some great history was uh, Tracy Guns and the fact that I wasn't a Tracy Guns fan really prior to doing this book, but when I had to research him. You know, he is the guns and guns and roses. Whether you like it or not, that's the case. And uh, the stories he told with, you know, sitting up at night talking to Axel, you know, on his mom's couch and, you know, coming up with the idea for guns and roses. And it was just, uh, it was really neat to walk down that historical past with him. That, it, was a, it was a cool time for me, and I was honored to get to do that. Oh, wow. I'm looking forward to reading that one. Like, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> I was telling you off here, I've, I've read through the book a little bit. I haven't gone through everything, but I've definitely gone gone through enough to, to get a feel for things. Cool. Um, the Bruce Kulick one captured my interest from the get-go. I am a huge KISS fan. I have been since probably about the age of 12 or 13. And um, I, I'll tell you what I found really interesting was Bruce's take on Eric Carr. I, I never would have guessed that Eric Carr wasn't happy with KISS. Well, I, I wouldn't have thought that either, and you almost have to read between the lines a little bit on that, but, uh, you know, I've had, a lot of chan I've had a lot of time to, you know, reflect on that interview and read that interview a couple times, and I think what Bruce is trying to say is Gene and Paul have such a creative grip on that organization, and any of the writing is typically done by Gene and Paul, or they'll bring in, you know, Desmond or someone along those lines to help them with the writing concepts. Kulik and Eric really weren't a huge part of that, especially Eric. And I think that frustrated him because he was unable to be very creative. And that's why he was a little bit frustrated. And again, that's reading between the lines and Bruce doesn't necessarily come right out and say that, but I think that's to be the case. Yeah. And I guess that, that interview was just, Thanks. Really captured me start to finish. That was phenomenal. Thanks, and, and you know, it's Bruce was one of those guys. You know, 
obviously Tales from the Stage, it's Tales from the Stage Volume 1, and uh, we're starting to work on Volume 2 in the very near future. But, you know, anytime you have a, a new project and you're coming out of the, uh, you know, you have a new project in the works and you're pitching it to people, a lot of folks are a little bit hesitant to jump on board because it's a new project. Is it, is it going to be worth their while? Is it going to make them look bad? All this kind of thing. But I, I tell you what, Bruce jumped right on board, and uh, it was nothing more than, than an email or two I had sent him, and he said, okay, let's do it. And, uh, you know, keep in mind, I have to tell these guys before the interview what I'm doing. So I have to be very upfront with how detailed I'm going to be with the questions and how personal I'm going to get. Yeah. And, and Bruce was really cool with it. He's like, all right, let's run with it. And uh, we've become friends over time, but uh, I'm very glad and very honored he partook in the book. Yeah, and you know, we, we've had him on our show before, and he's just been just such a cool, laid-back, down-to-earth guy, you know? He is. He is. He and, just and got engaged, as a matter of fact. I, well, I saw that. I saw that. I, I followed him. I, I can't remember if it was on Facebook or Twitter where I caught that. Yeah, I think um, probably both in his case. But, uh, yeah, super, super great guy. Yeah, and, and for me, he defined what guitar playing should be. Like, I've, I've been a bass player, you know, all my life, really, and I play a little guitar, but I'm, I'm primarily a bass player. So watching KISS, and I'm going to guess, you know, you're probably familiar with this next video, but um, the Animalized Live Tour. Sure. And now, like, like that, that was just burned in my mind, especially, like, hearing him talk about some of the, some of the stories about how all that stuff came about, and then learning that that was probably one of his first or second shows that they filmed for that. The guy's a phenomenal player. Yeah, he really is, and he's super diverse, and I mean, we talk about that in the interview. I mean, the guy's played with Michael Bolton. Uh, the guy's played with Meatloaf. I mean, uh, you know, John Karabi in, in the, uh, the Union Project, and he's just a very diverse guitar player, but what I thought was a little bit interesting is I was actually a Mark St. John fan, and I loved the Animalize album, and I know to a huge Kiss fan it's kind of controversial to say because it didn't get huge... Uh, didn't get a whole lot of positive reviews, but I, I thought it was a great album. And I, like I really liked that song, Into the Fire, and I thought the guitar on it was just, just wicked. And I used to always say to myself, I wonder if Bruce could play that live, because I'd never heard him play it live. And it was interesting to hear his take on it. Whenever he said, you know, that song he struggled with a little bit. Yeah. Uh, but anyhow, long story short, I, I really enjoyed that interview, and I think it came out pretty well. No, no, yeah, it was a really great interview. So let me ask you, so how did... Like, how did you do these interviews? Were these in person? Were they written? Were they phone? Like, like how how'd you go about tracking all these guys down? Uh, well, as far as tracking them down goes, there was a couple different ways, one of which was the NAM show that takes place like the third week of January each year, and I'm getting ready to go uh, in a couple weeks to that. It's actually almost a week away now, but I went last year, and uh, basically when I walked into the NAM show, if you... If you follow these guys on Facebook or Twitter, they will send out their schedule in advance as to where they will be at NAM. So uh, basically, I sat down for a couple hours and figured out where everyone was who I wanted to visit with, and I literally uh, sometimes stood in line to talk to these guys real quick and get nothing more than their contact information and pitch them real quickly on the idea. Uh, so at the NAM show, I was able to secure Jeff Duncan from Armored Saint in DC4, uh, Jay Reynolds from Malice and Metal Church, as well as Chris Holmes from Wasp. I got to meet those four guys, and they bought into the concept. Once I had those four guys on board, it bought me some credibility with other musicians moving forward. Uh, 
being from Las Vegas, I wanted to support the Las Vegas guys. So like Oz Fox from Striper, Paul Shortino from Quiet Riot, Ron Keel of Keel. Uh, I was able to, you know, get those guys on board. And then everything else was just kind of social media and emails reaching out to these guys, pitching the project to them, and uh, they jumped on board. But as far as doing the actual interviews, everything was done via phone, recorded, then transcribed literally word for word. Wow. There was a lot of transcription. That, that had to be a process. Like, how, <laughs> how many hours did it took you to put this book together? Well, luckily, I wasn't working at the time uh, other than, than doing this book. So it, it would be sh- it's shocking to tell most people from the day I came up with the concept to the day I held the book in my hand, it was five months. Now, that wow. being said, I would say probably 15 of those weeks in between those months were 70 to 80-hour weeks. I mean – my relationship was was <laughs> terrible at the time just because I, I never saw my girlfriend and it was just a uh, a very tedious process, but I had that goal in mind of getting that book done as quickly as possible because some of the interviews were time sensitive. So I really focused on, you know, getting the thing done, 70, 80 hours a week working on it, and five months later had the project done and I think it came out, you know, I'm really proud of the final product. Yeah, I, I can't believe it. it only took you five months. I mean, this is, I mean, this, this is a piece of work. And you, you know what I really, really dig about it is that since it's a collection of interviews, it they're the same but different. So I can easily pick one interview, sit down and read it, and read it in a short setting, then come back. It's not like a book where I feel like I'm going to lose something if I put it down. It, absolutely, and and we have a uh, a funny philosophy around here. We say we won't be satisfied until Tales from the Stage sits on the back of every toilet in America, just because <laughs> it's it's great bathroom reading material that you can you know bang out an interview in about twenty five minutes to thirty minutes, I guess. But uh, I've I've talked to numerous people who said they've cut, did the whole book in one day because sometimes it does get hard to put down. You're like, okay, just one more interview because you know it's only going to take you twenty five minutes to a half hour to read another interview. Yeah. So what was your development process like for the questions? Because, I mean, you know, I, I remember, and I think it's the Jay Reynolds interview, because um, he was the guy who was also with Megadeth. And, um, Correct. There was one. I think the thing, like, oh, there's one interview I remember reading where he just flat out, like, do you do drugs or something like that? I'm like, holy crap, like, you were direct. And, and, you know, like, as you've already stated, so you obviously set these people up and let them know. But so what was your thought process on developing these questions? Like, how did you put them together? Because they were customized for individuals as well. Yeah. Uh, well, basically, any book or any interview, what, what makes a good one from a bad one or a mediocre one, in my opinion, is the stories. So it's all about who is going to have the best story, uh, who is going to provide the best story. So what I did whenever I... I was coming up with the concept for this is I said, these guys are interviewed all the time for 15 or 20 minutes and they're asked pretty much the same questions and people really don't get to know them. Like whenever Rudy Sarzo, and he's not in the book, but if Rudy Sarzo is interviewed about his new involvement with Jeff Tate's band, he's asked about how is it working with Jeff? Are you looking forward to playing the Queensryche tunes on stage? Do you still visit with Ozzy on occasion? Maybe those are the questions asked, but you really don't get to know the guy. I wanted people to really connect with the person they were reading about. So I thought it was important that a lot of people already know about their career to an extent, but I wanted to go in more detail with that within you know, the personal relationships within the band, the infighting of 
internally with the band or externally for that matter with other bands, but I really wanted to focus on their personal life. So I did have to, you know, fair warn these guys. And if you look at the back cover of the book, there's an email on there that, uh, from a guy who backed out, who actually did the interview with me. I researched him for days, did the interview with a massive band who's probably sold 50 million albums. And the guy backed out just saying, Hey, it's too, uh, it's too personal. It seems a little bit exploitive. I don't want to do it. And that was kind of a bummer, but everyone else was on board with it. And, uh, I really, you know, to answer your question, I just really wanted the reader to connect with the person they were reading about. Whether or not they ended up liking them at the end of the interview, and there's probably a couple interviews where people said, that guy was kind of a dick, you know the guy, or at least you feel like you know the guy. And that was kind of the whole premise behind it. Well, see, and and you know, that's a really good point. Like, you really do feel like you know these people. Like, I mean, I told you, I've been a Kiss fan for as long as I can recall. Sure. And... I, this is one of the best interviews I think I've ever read with Bruce Kulick. Like I, I can just read it over and over again. It's very entertaining. You know, you 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 get a lot of good stories out of him, and you really get a glimpse into what it's like to be this person. You know, thanks. I mean, and see, that was the that is super flattering because that was the overall goal in doing this. So uh, thanks for saying so. Uh, no problem, man. So hey, so what's this the self publishing process like? So we talked about. You know, you had to do all the transcriptions, and then, you know, the the you know f- fifteen weeks or whatever with the eighty hour um, weeks. So how, like, like now that you've got it done, completed, finished work, like, so what's the publishing process like? Like, how do you get it out there? Where can our listeners find this book? Because, I mean, I know our listeners would love this book. This is a really really fun read. So where? Take me through that part of the process. Absolutely. Well, first off, you can find the book at talesfromthestage.com. It's not accessible anyplace else at this time other than Book Soup on the Sunset Strip in West Hollywood or Kiss Mini Monster Golf here in Las Vegas. Uh, but if you want to purchase it online, just talesfromthestage.com. Now, the self-publishing process, and it's funny you bring that up because, as I mentioned, I'm going to NAM in about 10 days. I'm actually speaking there on Saturday morning about the self-publishing process. Uh, but, but it's just the way it sounds, really. You do everything, and it, it's much simpler than one would guess. Uh, you just start typing up a Word document for a book. In my case, it was a lot of transcriptions from interviews. And then once you have, in my case, all the interviews done, you kind of combine them into one big document. You place the photos within the the document. Then you go to the self-publishing company that you want to use. I personally used Lulu, L-U-L-U.com. And they give you all the you know templates and the uploadable software to just load it in their system. And it's called POD, which is print on demand. So... I don't have to order a whole bunch of books up front. I don't have to order you know, 3,000 books and hope that they sell. If I want to, I can order one book. The downside to that is one book is a lot more expensive than 100 books. But in my case, I ordered, you know, I, I think the first order was like 450 books, and I got a significant discount on that than if I would have ordered one book. You know, So uh, that was really about it. I mean, it was obviously a little more detailed than that, but it's a pretty simplistic process. My recommendation would be, though, to make certain you get a decent graphic designer to make sure you have a nice cover. But, uh, but outside of that, man, it's just, it's just you doing everything. And I, I was, again, pretty happy with the results. 
So how's the promotion of this book been going? Like, have you been trying to do any book tours or, you know, I, I guess when you're self-publishing it and you, you know, I, well, I guess like how's that part going? The promotion? Well, that's, that's funny fun. because we're going to talk about that at NAM, and I was just going over my presentation last night and a lot of people ask me that question. They say, when do you start promoting and when do you stop promoting? And, and the answers are very easy now and never. Uh, and that's, pretty much how it is. I will promote Tales from the Stage 1 literally till, till the day I die. Uh, that doesn't mean I won't promote Tales from the Stage 2 when it comes out, but I will continue to promote any book that I've self-published, or even if, if I choose to have a publisher pick this up, I, you will promote those books till the day you die. And you know, I, I reached out to a lot of radio stations, magazines, podcasts, whoever it might be, to uh, visit with them, talk a little bit about metal, educate their you know viewing audience, and hopefully entertain them a little bit. And if they think the book sounds attractive to them, uh, hopefully they'll pick up a copy. But yeah, the promotion process just never stops, and I can't tell you. I think I've probably done. It's got to be nearing a hundred interviews, I guess, somewhere around oh, there. Wow. Yeah. But I enjoy it. I mean, it's fun talking metal with everyone. Yeah. No, I'd, I'd say this has been a fun conversation already. Cool. Um, uh, what did I just want to ask you? Um, oh, so, so are there any plans to, like, take the book into, into e-publishing, like trying to get, like, an iBooks or in the Kindle store or anything like that? Yeah, we have a uh, – right now, as far as e-books go, we just have a PDF. And that's, that's what we've kind of run with. And that's actually worked really well for us so far. With future volumes, we might get a little bit more complex than that and, and go the Kindle route like you mentioned or something along those lines. But for the first volume, we just figured the PDF was going to be easiest just because there was a lot of people reviewing the book. Some people didn't have necessarily a Kindle-compatible document to review the book on, and pretty much everyone can open up a PDF if I needed to send that out to someone. And we just used the PDF for our ebook, but that also is available on the website. Oh, very cool, very cool. Yeah. All right, so <clears throat> last last question here. We'll start to wrap up. Sure. Of these 15 in the first, well, you know what? I take that back. There's going to be a couple more questions. But so of these fir first 15 in, in the Tales from the Stage Volume 1, who would you say was your favorite interview or possibly the most surprising interview for you? Okay, my favorite interview, and, this, and that was my favorite interview probably because I just really connected with the guy, was, uh, was Ripper Owens. We, uh, we're from the same part of the country. I'm from Detroit originally. We're the same age, from the same high school class, love the same music. So we really, uh, kind of hit it off, and, and it was really fun talking to him about some of the history he had you know, with Judas Priest. And then immediately following Judas Priest, and Ripper was really kind of open about, you know, one of the questions I asked him as soon as they said uh, he had the gig after his audition, I'm like, well, how'd the money situation work? When was that discussed? And, and he went into kind of a good amount of detail about that. So uh, he gave me a really great interview. And the one that probably shocked me the most was Chris Holmes from Wasp. Uh, he tells some amazing stories about Blackie Lawless, and he has a genuine, uh, for lack of a better term, hate for Blackie Lawless. And, and wow. he goes into detail with it and talks about how he got screwed on his publishing. And uh, he talks about uh, how he was living at the time. And to, to be quite honest, he was living be, uh, behind a buddy's house in a shed. Uh, he talked about living on the street the first time he was kicked out of Wasp. Uh, he's talked about his current 
and past drug use, but his current drug use was pretty entertaining. Uh, but he just tells a bunch of stories, and it is absolutely just raw. I mean, he doesn't hold anything back and really gives a fantastic interview. Wow, wow. Yeah. You know, and it's funny, like, back to that Ripper one, uh, uh-huh. I loved that question about, like, what was the money situation like? I'm like, man, that's great. Cause, you know, because you always wonder. I mean, like, Jews Priest was a highly established band when he joined us. Like, okay, what's, what's that going to be like? like that, that was really insightful, you know. Well, you know, it, it, I appreciate you saying that, and it, it was pretty insightful because I don't know about you, but I always assumed, hey, Ripper's playing a Judas Priest now. I mean, how many millions is this guy making? And that's not what they do. They say, okay, we're going to hire you for Judas Priest, and we're going to pay you a couple bucks on a retainer. You get no publishing revenue. Uh, you're just basically, it's almost like a, we're going to pay you like it's a nine-to-five job for you. And I think it was a very modest, he didn't give me the exact amount, but it, in reading it, it sounds like it was a pretty modest dollar amount. Uh, but, yeah, I found that pretty entertaining. Yeah, that was wild. That was wild. Chris Holmes goes into dollar amounts. So he'll tell you exactly what he was making during exactly what year in Wasp. So that's a lot of fun. Wow. I'm looking forward to that one because I was a big Wasp fan, too. I, I, um, you won't be really after you read that. Well, you might be a Wasp fan. You won't be a Blackie fan after you read his interview. Oh, it's gonna be tough because I because I do really really like Blackie, so it's, it's it's gonna be interesting to see how that goes. Yeah, yeah. Let me know. All right. So um, you had mentioned Tales from the Stage Volume Two. What kind of teaser can you give our listeners for for when that's coming out? Maybe who might be in it? Well, Volume Two, if I had a guess right now, will probably be around August two thousand thirteen. Uh, just like last year, I will start the process at NAM this year. So in a couple not even a couple of weeks, like 10 days when I'm at NAM, I've already reached out to a couple of these guys via email to uh, see their interest level and setting up meetings right now with them to see if they want to, you know, be uh, active in the process or, or be part of the book. But, you know, you need to keep in mind, it sounds like it'd be just a simple thing that these guys would just jump on board and say, sure, I could use the PR, but I really do grill these guys. I mean, the, these are interviews that... Uh, like someone like Jeff Tate, who is a little bit close to the vest, I don't know that he would be a good interview for the book because the questions that I ask, he probably won't want to answer. And it just has to be part of the deal. Going in, it's like, if you're not going to answer these questions, let's not involve you. So I really need to kind of focus on guys who I know are you know, brutally honest in interviews and really just will be like, sure, I'll tell you whatever you want to know. That's the greatest thing in the world when I talk to these guys and say, okay, is there anything I, I can't ask you? And they say, no, you can ask me anything. I'm like, beautiful. And Ripper was like that. He's like, no, fire away, whatever you want. So uh, I, I can't tell you exactly who's going to be in it, but there probably will be about 15 folks. Uh, maybe the names will be a little bit, potentially a little bit bigger than they were in volume one because I've got some, some history now and some credibility behind me. But uh, if you just follow us on the Facebook page, Tales from the Stage, uh, we will keep you posted every week as to who will be in Volume 2. Man, I am looking forward to that. I'm looking forward to that. Now, and again, that's talesfromthestage.com, right? That is correct. And, and I, if I can just point out real quick, not only can you order the book there, but it's a pretty interactive website that has a whole bunch of book excerpts you can read, a whole bunch of book reviews, probably over 20 of them. Uh, and there's also video interviews there that I've done some follow-up interviews with probably eight guys in the book. 
just asking them what they've been up to. And I talked to, you know, Chris Holmes, Bruce Kulik, Paul Shortino, Ron Keel, Brian Tishy, and others. Uh, but it, it's a pretty neat website, and I just hope, if nothing else, you just go there and entertain yourself for a half hour and check out some of the stuff regarding the hard rock heavy metal movement. Fantastic. I'm going to have to check that out. Please. Well, Michael, thank you for doing the interview today. I really appreciate you coming on the show. Hey, Aaron, I appreciate being on, uh, and thanks for, thanks for having me. I mean, I had a great time, and stay warm up there in Pennsylvania. All right, a big thanks to Michael and uh, Aaron and Sean and Andy and uh, Daniel all for coming on the show, uh, helping us out this time. So uh, if you haven't checked out Inflames' newest release, you can get that at Amazon, iTunes, and all the good places. Same with the Scenics. Uh, and TalesFromTheStage.com to get the book. Uh, while you're on the web, IronCityRocks.com, Facebook.com forward slash IronCityRocks, Twitter.com forward slash IronCityRocks. Same thing with YouTube. Uh, no MySpace. I haven't had MySpace now in about two and a half years, so if you're looking for us there, you won't find us. Uh, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. Um, there are, if you're new to the show, there are 186 episodes prior to this uh, with many, many varieties of hard rock and metal uh, and blues and even some other miscellaneous stuff that falls outside of the world of music. So check that out. I hope you enjoyed the first installment of the official Heavy Metal Book Club. And uh, we welcome you back next time, where maybe we'll talk about another book. Till next time. Uh, also, don't forget, February 19th, Iron City Rocks presents Overkill at Alter Bar in Pittsburgh. So if you're in the Pittsburgh area, uh, check out Overkill. Unfortunately, we didn't get the Overkill Testament. I'm sorry, Overkill Exodus show. Uh, Exodus will be playing at the Rex Theater uh, later in the uh, spring as well. So uh, you can check out the Rex Theater for information about catching Exodus. But Overkill, Alter Bar, February 19th, Iron City Rock Show. Bobby Blitz will be in the house. So until next time, thank you for listening. <laughs>